Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Corner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Now before we descend into the crypt, I will start with reading my obituary, a notice of what I've been up to since we last spent time together. This past week, we held the second fundraiser for the short slasher flick that I'm making with my film pal, Katie McBrown. We hosted a bingo night at Tattooed Moms and ended up raising $738 for the production. Thanks to everyone that came out on a Monday night to support Pizza Man. It meant a lot to us. The most exciting part of the night was that we showed a teaser for the film, which seemed to garner much praise. It truly was a grand time. Shout out to our producer, Ian Kimball, for being a rad bingo caller. For those that could not make the event, you can still help fund the film. We aren't at the finish line yet, and we have a bit of ways to go to reach our production budget. So if you have any spare dough and want to help fund the flick, please head over to our Seed and Spark campaign. We have about two weeks left to raise $2,000. So again, visit seedandspark.com. Simply search for Pizza Man to find the campaign. And if you're looking for updates about the production, the cast, or you want to catch a glimpse of the teaser, head over to moviejohn.com slash pizza man. Other than fundraising, we have been hitting up thrift stores and other fine retailers gathering props and costumes for the film shoot in November. Recently, a fellow movie genre, Suze L. Seema, stopped by and visited my film laboratory. Now, you may know Suze from her column, Just Jeff, which is a sporadic column that she writes about Jeff Goldblum and the movies that he's in. It's really awesome, and you can find it on moviejohn.com. But with the movie, um, with Pizza Man, Susan has been helping with designing some of the costumes and came over and created the Pizza Man mascot outfit. And it is awesome. I can't wait for everyone to see it in the film. So thanks, Suze, for helping out. A spookin' Tin Pan Alley Walkin' on the piano keys He's a jivin' ghost Who can make the most of his rhythmic tendencies So better watch out Someone's about Haunting the town With new kinds of rhythm You may meet The Boogie Woogie Boogie Man Better beware Better take care Cause if you don't You'll go along with him When you meet Now, with fall arriving, I've been watching some of my favorite Halloween flicks, such as Arsenic and Old Lace, Cat People, Dracula, and so many more. Halloween is my favorite time of year. So, of course, I would watch these movies at any time, but honestly, it's more fun when the goblins and ghouls are in town. Now, for those in the Philly area, this Wednesday, 
The 28th annual Philadelphia Film Fest begins, and it will be in town until the 27th of this month. And I'm super excited about the program this year. There are quite a number of flicks that I did catch at Sundance and TIFF, such as Blow the Man Down, Honey Boy, Vest of Night, Dogs Don't Wear Pants, and that's just naming a few. And however, if you're trying to narrow down your watch list, I highly recommend checking out moviejohn.com. Um, our contributor, Jamie Lee, The Fixer, just posted a great list there, and I think it'll really help you um, make your list. So check that out. Now, personally, some of my most anticipated flicks are Parasite, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Deerskin. Now, Deerskin is probably the oddest pick I have, but it is a follow-up from the director that brought the movie Rubber to Life, which is a movie about a murderous tire. Um, So this guy is a little eccentric, but definitely can't wait to see that movie. Um, So I hope you can catch some flicks at the fest. If you're looking to catch a new release in cinemas this week, I do have a few recommendations. One being The Lighthouse, which opens this week, and I had mentioned this movie on a previous episode of Cinematic Crypt. This is a new movie from Robert Eggers, who's the dude behind the awesome flick The Witch that came out a few years ago. Now, I saw The Lighthouse at the Toronto International Film Fest, or TIFF, and I absolutely loved it. I highly recommend you check out this movie, um, especially in a theater. It's definitely one of those that I feel seeing it in the cinema just adds to the awesomeness. But it's about two lighthouse keepers that find themselves stranded on a remote yet enchanting island during a storm. And it opens this Friday. Now, the other recommendation I have is a flick that I actually caught at Sundance back in January of this year and was happy to learn that IFC picked it up and will be distributing it. And that is Greener Grass. And this is an eccentric flick made by two female filmmakers, Jocelyn Dobauer and Dawn Lubby, which, sorry if I mispronounced your names, um, but it's about two competitive suburban soccer moms set in an extremely eccentric world. If I had to describe this world that they find themselves in, I would say it is in the vein of a Kids in the Hall episode with some David Lynch on the side. It's pretty wild and awkward, and I love it. And it will be playing in select theaters starting Friday, but will also be available for purchase on demand. So definitely check it out. For those that know me personally, Know that October is also my favorite time of month because my birthday is on October 13th. This year, I got some amazing gifts, including my very own life-size skeleton, which I have named Mr. Bones. I also got a vintage Ouija board. Little Mother Foxy Bates and I almost have everything we need now in order to conduct a proper seance. All we need is a crystal ball. Hint, hint, Ben. Lastly, I am happy to report that the latest edition of Movie John has finally shipped, 
Woohoo! So if you subscribe, uh, you can expect to find that in your mailbox sometime in the near future. If you would like to purchase a copy of our latest zine featuring bad moms in cinema, believe me, you want to get your hands on this. The cover is of the notorious Norma Bates and her son Norman, and it's illustrated by Movie John's Hollywood hunk and art director Hugo Marmucci. And hey, the zine is printed in London, England, so it's really freaking cool. Um, but visit moviejohn.com shop to purchase a copy and subscribe. It's only 25 bucks for the whole year and you get four radical issues. It's a steal. So go check that out. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Come, follow me to the cinematic crypt. It's a perfect night for mystery and horror. The air itself is filled with monsters. The 1927 Universal Pictures film, The Cat and the Canary, by German director Paul Lini, is a silent, spooky flick that falls in the genre I refer to as wills and thrills. Paul's coffin is whom we shall be prying open today. Paul passed away not too long after making The Cat and the Canary. At the age of 44, he died in 1929 of blood poisoning, leaving behind 32 film credits to his name. He would go on to be most known for The Man Who Laughs Last, a silent picture that I mentioned in the last episode, which is often credited as being the inspiration for the character, The Joker. The film's story is, after an eccentric millionaire, Cyrus West, passes away, he deems that his will shall not be read for 20 years. Prior to midnight of the 20th year, his relatives descend to his derelict mansion, located on a spooky hill surrounded by fog, to find out who the heir of his fortune shall be. A man by the name of Robert Hill wrote the adaptation for this flick but also served as an assistant to Paul Lini. This was due to Paul not speaking much English. Robert, on the other hand, spoke German as well, so he was able to help Lini communicate his directions to the cast and crew. The restoration that I watched was made from one of the original nitrate prints of the 1927 film, and it had a great score added. Now, for those not familiar with nitrate, this was a film stock that was previously used up until about the early 1950s. It was extremely flammable and tended to erode at a relatively early age. Therefore, it was phased out and a less hazardous style of film stock is now utilized today. Luckily, I don't have to worry about my copy of The Cat and the Canary bursting into flames. I love this film from the moment it opened, and I'll tell you why. The fonts. Silent films always have the best fonts. The Cat and the Canary is no exception to this. 
The opening title credits are first revealed when a hand wipes away the cobwebs and dust on a window pane. I have not watched a ton of silent films yet, keyword being yet, but this film definitely made me want to check out more of them because I love the way they utilized the text to convey the haunting mood of the film. At some points during the film, the fonts are given motion to them and the word zoom in and out to add to the creepy vibes of the haunted mansion flick. Heck, I even love the Universal logo that played prior in the opening credit scene. A globe with a little plane circles and spells Universal Studios. Goblins and ghouls, the past was so rad. Filmmaking truly was a work of art back then. So much plotting and scheming went into each and every frame. Even the font choice. I love it. So, we learn that the eccentric millionaire Cyrus West is still wandering the halls of his mansion as a ghost. One resident is present, though, living out a life alone in the grotesque manner. Mammy Pleasant. Think Wicked Witch of the West, and ta-da, you now have met Mammy Pleasant. She is the house butler, maid of sorts. However, I'm not really sure who she's cleaning up after, except for the ghost of Mr. West. I guess maybe his ghosty pals. I mean, you know what? Actually, those ghosts, they probably got up to some wild and crazy things. Midnight madness filled with poker games, sequins, off-track betting, top hats, and spike cider drinks. On second thought, I bet Mammy Pleasant keeps busy. So, one by one, the family members arrive. However, the first to knock on the door is Mr. Crosby. Now, before he arrived, though, I must add, we learn that the safe holding the will had been opened by a mysterious hand. So something was tampered with. So when Mr. Crosby heads to the safe, a moth flies out. This is his cue revealing that someone has been inside the safe already and the will has been tampered with. Movies about wills are so enthralling to me, but also a learning experience. It gives me ideas for my own will and the craziness that I will ensure await those that I leave behind. Of course, there will be an activity of sorts, maybe a scavenger hunt or a night spent in the woods. By candlelight, I suppose. Hey, I worked hard for my loot, and I'm not just going to give it away. One by one, these family members arrive. Harry Blith and Charlie Wilder, who we learn have a long-standing quarrel. Aunt Susan, niece Cecily are left at the end of the driveway being warned by the chauffeur of the ghosts that await. We are introduced to Paul Jones, who really reminded me of a Harold Lloyd type, the silent film actor who is known for his zany stunts and comedic performances. Then there is Annabelle West. I love the way she introduced us to Paul Jones, by the way. Why, Paul? I haven't seen you since the nurse dropped you on your head pretty much sums up his existence perfectly. This brings me to something else that I loved about this movie. Since it is silent, 
the characters are not verbally able to tell you about one another. So the title cards are the only way to communicate this, and you don't want to overdo it, mind you, as a film is supposed to show you the story, and I think that visually, Paulini does a great job with this. So example, Annabelle West, she was the last family member to arrive, and when Aunt Susan remarks, you have had 20 years to get ready. In regards to her lateness, she may not have said the line aloud, but you can sense through her snarky attitude the type of character she is. This is also seen by the exaggerated looks that often actors give within a silent film to help convey their feelings and moods to the viewer. When the clock mysteriously strikes at midnight, it was very puzzling, very mystifying, as it had not worked since old Cyrus passed. It signifies that it is time for the will to be opened. It is learned that the fortune shall be left to the most distant relative bearing the last name West. This is Annabelle. However, there is a clause. Of course there is. A doctor shall arrive and provide an exam to see if the heir is mentally sane. If not, then the second envelope would be opened and reveal the new heir. Okay, so it is late and everyone is going to spend the night in this derelict manner. Because hey, this is where the thrills come in. Right before bedtime, though, a picture of Cyrus flies off the wall, which Mammy Pleasant takes as a bad omen. For me, the real horror of this entire production was when Annabelle removes her hat and exposes her helmet of a hair. Terrifying. I once had this type of haircut myself, which Ben referred to as hockey hair. It was a very troubling time. Something I have not mentioned about this movie, but need to tell you about now, as I don't want to forget it, honestly, not sure I could, is the title. The Cat and the Canary, the writer loved this title, this concept, as the titular line is mentioned numerous times during this 80-some-odd-minute runtime. Mr. Crosby even compares Annabelle to a canary in a cage, and the relatives are the cats, which is exactly how old Cyrus West felt when the relatives were awaiting him to die. I love this idea so much. I know, I am morbid, but it is a great image to have in your mind. Just think about it. Okay, okay, so they all are off to their own quarters for sleep, but you know that ain't gonna happen. A random dude shows up to the door, claims he is chasing a maniac, a man that thinks he is a cat and tears his victims as if they were a canary. So, you know, totally normie stuff going on here. He demands they show him the grounds so that he can inspect the home and states, no one shall leave. They listen to this random stranger, cause sure, why not? This is where it is revealed that the home is filled with secret passageways and hidden bookcases and just plain awesomeness. Mr. Crosby is even taken into one of these secret passageways by that creepy hand we saw earlier meddling with the safe. And guess what? He had the other envelope with him. 
So we have a missing person, a crazy cat dude, this random drifter. Things are getting wild. Annabelle is taken to Cyrus's quarters to go to sleep by Mammy and given instructions about how to find the family diamonds. She finds them and discovers it is a huge diamond necklace in which she decides that it must be worn immediately. Of course, it is taken by, yes, you got it, that creepy hand, which was one of my favorite shots of the flick because it was actually extremely terrifying. Imagine it, a hand just drifting over your face while you sleep. Annabelle freaks out after this occurs, and it is at that time that the others come dashing to the room. She attempts to explain all the chaos, the creepy hand, Mr. Crosby gone missing. She sounds insane. Uh-oh. Suddenly, the side panel opens, and ta-da, out falls Mr. Crosby, a corpse. They want to call the cops, but the phone is dead. The wire was cut. Get the hotel? No. The phone's dead. You hear that, Petus? The phone is dead. Even the phone is dead. All right, all right. Don't get too excited. Actually, quiet down. Paul, you remember Paul Jones, the one that looked like Harold Lloyd? Well, he's trying to think. Or at least he thinks he's trying to think. This is definitely the part where everyone starts to lose their marbles. So it is also the perfect time for the doctor to appear, who seriously reminded me of a Dr. Caligari type. You know, the guy from the last Spooky Silence episode? So he was absolutely perfect, this guy. He seriously looked like a madman absolutely nothing comforting about this guy. He then has the nerve to ask Annabelle, what makes you so nervous? Of course, Annabelle sounds like she's off her rocker, explaining the happenings of the evening, finishing the tale by saying, and then a hand like a claw or a spider came out of the wall and took my necklace. So the only solution here is for her to drink some powder that the doctor dumps into a a water. Perfect. So she just proceeds to lose her mind more. Now, a couple things that inspired me about this movie was the way in which they utilized this one location to tell the story. There were some exterior shots as well, but the main story takes place in this house, and the house itself is a character. Something I need to make a note of for myself about my next script, especially when I attempt a feature-length one. All right, so in the end, the police do find their way to the mansion after Aunt Susan managed to leave the house and just so happened to stumble upon some cops on motorbikes. She convinces them to make the trek to the Old West Manor by remarking, Ghosts are murdering people! Definitely a way to get somebody's attention. So when they arrive, chaos has completely broken out. The maniac with the claw hands, fang teeth is out, and the guard reveals the entire scenario to the cops. Remember that drifter guy? The maniac is actually one of the relatives dressed up, attempting to drive poor Annabelle mad. 
As he learned, he was the second heir if she was deemed insane. The necklace ends up being returned, and Annabelle gets her riches. Finn. But wait, there's more. The movie continues to give even at the end credits, informing you this is repeated at the request of the picture patrons who desire to check the names of the work that has pleased them. This was really yes. I just love old stuff like that. But there was also a notation at the end from Universal Pictures asking what you thought of the picture and to write them a letter. How rad. I hope I inspired you to check out The Cat and the Canary. I purchased a Blu-ray copy from Kino Lorber, which I highly recommend, as the presentation is superb. However, I am sure your local library would have this flick as well. I also believe it may be online, however, beware, as the print may not be great. Also, don't forget, there are many versions of this movie. It was originally a stage play that went on to be adapted numerous times, so if you want to learn more about that, I suggest reading Movie John contributor Roderick Towers' article, A Haunting We Will Go, which is now available at moviejohn.com. After you watch The Cat and the Canary, let me know what you think, and you can drop me a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. Don't be a stranger. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt. For my next episode, I will continue my examination of spooky silence and dissect the 1921 silent film, The Phantom Carriage. Set on New Year's Eve, a drunken man is forced to think about his literal wasted life when he is paid a visit by a ghostly carriage. This is a flick that my friend, The Phantom, has been spilling the beans to me about for years. Well, buddy, I'm finally gonna watch this goddammer. Until next time, film pals, don't forget to visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe and find our latest print scene in your mailbox featuring writings about bad moms of cinema. Again, it also features the awesome cover design by Hugo Marmuji, who is also the artist of our rad podcast logo. Thanks, pal. Also, a shout out to my Canadian film pal, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating the tunes you hear on this program. It is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Mammy Pleasant. I don't need the living ones, for when I crawl into my coffin, I will find myself in paradise, an eternally lone existence. Goodbye, film pals.